Well, if you've been around for the last uh, few weeks, you know that we have been talking about Advent and promises being fulfilled. And we're going to continue that today and then wrap it up next week uh, with the final message from Josh. I am not Josh. He was on stage a few moments ago. My name is Mitchell Halstead. I'm one of our other ministers, and I'm grateful to be speaking to y'all in person as well as online, all of you folks watching from home. But before we jump into the message, I want to remind everybody that we've got an, an Advent reading plan for the whole family. So if you've got young children and you want to participate in an Advent reading experience over the course of the month of December, which is, of course, already started. Uh, This is week three. So if you have the Jesus Storybook Bible, it's a wonderful book. We've got one at home. And you would like to read through several of the stories related to the Advent of the Messiah. This is this week's reading plan. You're welcome to take a picture of it. I'll leave it up there for a moment. Uh, Of course, if you've got the book, you you can dig through that yourself as well. I want to remind everybody that the whole purpose of this Advent series has been to highlight some Old Testament figures, some famous characters from the Old Testament, and show how promises that were made to them find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. So that's where we're going with today's message, in case you wanted a little bit of a heads up. But I was thinking about 2020, and it's almost over. Anybody excited about that? Maybe? Um, Most people, I believe, are ready for the next year and hopefully good things to come. But there was a number that I came across a few days ago that I thought was fascinating and it just, it reveals a lot about a lot of things. But here's the number. $14 billion. $14 billion, which is not my net worth, Although I know some of you were probably thinking it was. It's also not 2021 Clear Creek operating budget. That'd be pretty cool if it was. But no, it's far, far larger than that. This number represents the estimate of the total amount of money that was spent during the 2020 election cycle. So there's a lot of people that got elected, obviously. It's not just about one person. And you're looking at this number saying, yeah, surely that's not just to to hire one president to, to run our country. And you're right, it's not. But... This number, oops, missed it. This number is the amount of money estimated that we spent as a nation trying to elect a single person into the highest office of our country. Over $6 billion spent trying to elect the president of the United States. That's a lot of money. Sounds crazy. It's not quite as crazy as this statistic. The 2020 election cost more money by two, a factor of two, twice as much money as the 2016 election, which was the most expensive election ever. We doubled the amount of money we spent as a nation trying to elect the different people for office this year. That's a lot of money. And why? Why do we spend that kind of money and, of course, time and energy into electing one person or several people, but not a lot of people if you really break it down. I believe a simple truth, and I think you probably agree, that we all desire to be led by someone who will lead us well. Now, some of you in the audience are of the type that that you don't really like having to follow anybody. You might be resistant to authority in general, but even you would find yourself occasionally in the position of having to submit to the authority of someone, and you want that person to be worthy of their leadership role. In other words, we all want leaders worthy of being followed. And so as far as the president goes, we stick our, our, stick in the, our flag in the ground of our chosen political candidate, our favorite leader, and sometimes we sort of half-heartedly have to attempt to believe a promise, the promise of an election, 
that the president will not fail to lead us well. And so we pour huge amounts of money and energy and time into electing a man or a woman that we think, given the options at least, will lead us best because we naturally want to follow a person who will lead well. And we're not completely misguided on this idea, right? Because the fact is that a leader worthy of being followed will make things better. All right, if you're like, eh, I'm not so sure, think about this. We'll, we'll simplify. All right, so a coach of a team who is worthy is going to help that team win ballgames. A business person who is worthy is going to help their business increase sales and increase profits. That's kind of the whole point, right? A teacher who is worthy is going to help their students learn stuff throughout the course of the year. A president who is worthy is going to help bring the country to a better position domestically and internationally than they were under their predecessor. And you may argue, yeah, but there's way more factors involved than simply the person that's at the top. And you're right. That's absolutely true. We know that to be true. And yet that's not how we judge these leaders. Did we win games? Yes or no? Did profits increase during the the fourth quarter? Yes or no? Did my child learn anything in your class this year? Is the country better now than it was four years ago? This is how we judge leaders in a fairly black and white way. Whether it's fair, whether it's not, I'm not here to argue that. But the fact is, it's important to us to find and follow leaders, and we want to find good ones. So we spend a lot of money. We spend a lot of time trying to find those people. Now, we're not the only ones guilty of doing this. Way back in the olden days, in the Old Testament, the Israelites were just like us. And they wanted to follow leaders worthy of being followed. And a lot of Americans might look back and say, you know, that George Washington guy, our first president, he was a pretty good president. Maybe we can kind of say that he's the, the template of what a good president can be. Some of you might say that. In the same way as the Israelites had a template of a good leader. David was the template of what a great king should be to the people of Israel. Now, throughout the course of this lesson, in fact, if you, if you look at your sermon notes on the, on the thing, it says, Root of Jesse. The Root of Jesse is the name of our lesson. And I wanted to start off, as we're moving towards Jesus, of course, I wanted to start off by talking about the first Root of Jesse, his first descendant that's relevant to this story, the good King David. Now, we're not going to read through a bunch of David's life. We don't have time for that today, and that's not really the point. But if you wanted to go back through and read about King David and his life and his exploits and all the things that he was involved in, you can find his story, the, the compact, if it's not compact, but all of it all together, starting in 1 Samuel 16, that's where we meet him for the first time, and then he sort of passes on in 2 Kings chapter 2. But I wanted to try to consolidate a lot of his life into a few bullet points just to show us a little bit about what makes David the good king, the worthy king. So here's something that's pretty cool about the way he starts. David arose from obscurity. I mean, who was he before? He wasn't born the son of the king, King Saul at the time. He was the like millionth son of this guy, Jesse. He was a shepherd boy living in a fairly small town outside of the main city of you know, Bethlehem. That's where he was. He wasn't an anybody. He was a nobody. The smallest, the youngest. He was the one that they made watch the sheep at night. And yet, when God sends the prophet Samuel to anoint the future king... He sends him to Jesse, and as they're going through the line of sons, 
Samuel's like, oh, it's got to be the oldest one. It's got to be the best looking one. God's like, no, I don't judge by those appearance factors. He keeps going. He finally gets to David, finally. And God is like, Samuel, this is the one that's going to lead. He pulls him out of obscurity and allows him to rise up, ultimately, to become the king. But we also know that he was strong in faith from his youth. And all of us, church people or not, have heard of David and Goliath, the epic showdown between the little man versus the big man, the underdog story. And we know that David was not very old. We don't know exactly how old he was, but he, we, know, we know he was a young, young man. And yet he's the one that when he shows up on the battlefield, he's looking around and he sees all of his fellow Israelites cowering before the Philistine army because they've got a literal giant standing across the way hurling insults at them, challenging somebody to one-on-one combat. David, the shepherd boy, the youngest, walks up and he's like, is nobody going to fight this guy? And they're like, uh, no. And he's like, I'll fight him. I'll be that guy. And he gets to talk to the king and the king's like, this is crazy. And he's like, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm not the one going to battle. The Lord is going to battle. He's going to use me, but he's the one that's going to win the day. Long story short, David slays Goliath. He wins because, not of his skill in battle, but because of the faith that he showed from a young age. Pretty awesome. We also know that he becomes a great leader of men. In military, in the military, he becomes a captain and maybe even in, in some ways a general of leading many, many men into battle. He's very successful and people follow him. We also know that he attracts quite a devoted following of people. In fact, I love the story in the, in the books of Samuel where David and Saul are, are entering into a town after some kind of victory and all the people are gathered out and they're watching these, you know, all these military men walk in and they're cheering and they're doing the parade stuff and King Saul's approaching and they're like, yeah, hooray for Saul. Saul has killed his thousands. And everybody's like, yeah, Saul. And then David approaches and they see David and they're like, but David has killed his tens of thousands. People loved this guy. And for good reason. He's a pretty awesome dude, but let's keep going. He becomes a respected and beloved king. In fact, to the point that Israel will eventually idealize a king like David. They think that David is the ultimate template for what a king should be, but he is beloved by his people. And during his time as king, he expands the influence and the reach of Israel. The kingdom grows It becomes more significant in the region. And people look at it and say, man, King David has done some good things with his nation because of his leadership. But more than all of those things, the most significant factor that makes David the worthy king is that he sought after the Lord. And if you know your Old Testament history, you know that there were not a lot of kings of Israel and Judah that you could say sought after the Lord, but David did. Better than anybody. If you look through many, many of the Psalms, you will see that several of them are attributed to David. And you can read in his, in his poems and in his songs this heart that longs to be connected to God and, and to be restored to him when that's necessary. And so many of his things are talking about the power of God and the way that God can rescue him. And he loves the Lord and seeks after him throughout all of his days. In fact, God is so impressed with David, he makes him a promise. In 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, which is not going to be on the screen, but he tells him that his kingdom will never end and his descendants will reign on the throne forever. I mean, if you're the king, is there a better promise to receive that your reign will never end? You won't be here anymore, but it will continue on after you in your name. That's the promise that David receives because he is considered the worthy king, the worthy leader. And future Israel 
and Judah, of course, once they split, they will look back and idealize King David. And they will buy into the promise of royalty that the king will not fail to lead us well. But there is a problem. Just like the promise of an election is one that, to date, to my knowledge, has never been quite fulfilled, the promise of royalty is also a false promise. David was considered a worthy leader by his people, but worthy should never be confused with perfect, because he was far from perfect. And in fact, we know that David would indeed fail to lead his people well on at least a few occasions. And I'm not going to put these up on the screen for us to read because it would take forever to read these stories, but I'm going to paraphrase two stories of David failing to lead well. One of them is well known by many of you, probably, from 2 Samuel chapter 12. It's the story of David and Bathsheba. And to summarize it briefly, David is the king, well-established on the throne. His armies are off in battle, which is normally where he would be, but not this time. He's hanging out at the house, at the palace. And he's gazing out upon, you know, Jerusalem. And he's looking out and he sees on the rooftop bathing a beautiful woman named Bathsheba. And he decides, I want to take possession of her. And he's the king. He can do whatever he wants. And he does. And in doing so, he ultimately commits adultery with Bathsheba against his wife. This is not exactly something that we would say was a morally good choice for the good King David. And he is called out on this by the prophet Nathan, who calls him to task and says, you realize what you've done. And to his credit, he does repent and confess, but he has to suffer the consequence of this. And it doesn't look good for the leader of this glorious nation. But perhaps even more relevant to the idea of how he has led his nation well, towards the end of his life in 2 Samuel 24, we get the story of David Towards the end of his life, he's had a good long run at this whole king thing. And he's, we don't know exactly where his mindset is on this. The the scripture doesn't tell us specifically what is going on in his mind, but we know that he orders a census to be taken of all the fighting men of Israel. And we know this isn't a great idea because even Joab, his general, says, this isn't a good idea, man. Like, there's, this is not the kind of thing that God would want us to do, but David makes sure it happens anyway. They go out and they count, and then he gets the numbers back, and perhaps... It wasn't a good idea because it was a prideful, selfish thing. Perhaps David wanted to look out at his legacy and see, oh, what all have I built? What have I accomplished? Because we know that after it's over, he has a crisis of conscience. And he confesses to God that he has done a sinful thing in ordering this census. And he has to suffer a consequence. He has three options. One of the options results or would result in a long famine in his land. One of the options would result in a shorter but more devastating plague on his land and his people. And the final one is that he personally would have to be on the run for his life from his enemies for a time. And he says, I cannot bear to be put into the hands of my enemies. I'll take the plague. And thousands of people die. He doesn't die, but thousands of people that he is responsible for as the leader die because of his choice. And eventually he comes around and he says, what have I done? I should have borne this myself. But at that point, everybody knows David has failed to lead us well. Now, his problem is that he's a human being. All the hype, all the expectation of him being this promise of royalty that will never fail to lead his people well, that's never going to work because he, like us, is a flawed human man. He would never get it all right. But his problem becomes the problem of the people of Israel. 
Because after David, and largely because of a lack of, of leadership and a succession of weak and wicked kings, the people of Israel find themselves divided into two competing nations. And eventually both of those nations are overcome and overtaken and defeated by enemies from outside. In a literal sense, the kingdom of David that was supposed to, according to the promise, last forever, ceases to be. The people that long exalted David as the ultimate leader, the template leader, now have no one to look up to. Where is the leadership? Where or what happened to God's promise? But you see, their problem is also our problem. We want and need leader. Oh, I was supposed to say this. We realize that even great leaders will fail. That's unfortunately one of the messages that we get from David. You can write that in your notes. But we want and need leaders who will lead well. But we, like them, so often find ourselves disappointed. Let me tell you a story from my own past. So back when I was a kid, a young youth, and I was in youth group, which for us started in seventh grade. I came into youth group. My dad had been the youth minister for many, many, many years leading up to this point, but he had stepped aside into a new role at our church. And so we had a new guy, and we were all super excited, me and all my fellow seventh grade peers, and we were like, oh, youth group's gonna be awesome. And he was an exciting, energetic, creative man who was really capable of doing a lot of awesome things. But about a year into my youth group experience, he left. He resigned and left. And I found out years later that he had a lot of issues that he was dealing with, you know, relationship issues, issues with leadership on staff. Basically, he was just, he was not leading well in a lot of different areas of his life. And because of that, he failed to lead the youth ministry well, and he left. We would have said that he abandoned us. That's how we felt. So we got a new youth minister. And I loved this guy. I really got to know this guy well because I was a little bit older and he came in new and he was trying really hard to, to make friends with all of us. And, and uh, it was wonderful. I, I, I adored this guy. He was compassionate and he, he was funny. He just did all the things right. And we thought, all right, he's going to put us in a position of thriving in youth ministry. And about a year into his time, it was discovered that he had some stuff on his computer that he shouldn't have been looking at. And he ended up having to resign. And yet again, we're like, come on, what's the deal, right? Why are these guys failing us? So we got a new youth minister, and this guy was a big shot. He was coming from a large church from another major city in Texas, and he, was, he had all the skills, all the abilities, all the motivation and momentum to take us, you know, to where we wanted to go as a youth ministry. And it was going great for a year-ish. And then he resigned, and he left. And I found out years later, that it's because he was having a lot of conflict with other uh, elements of leadership. And his expectation of where his job was going to carry him maybe wasn't going to play out like he thought it was going to, and so he bailed on us. And yet again, what's the deal? Now, this sounds super negative, and I guess it is, but I loved my youth ministry experience. Loved it. Nobody had a better one than me. Except for all the kids that I lead, obviously. <laughs> but what I had to learn... And I, I didn't, I, I'm not going to continue the story because it goes on, but I ended up having five youth ministers in six years of being a youth ministry kid. It's a lot. It's not how it's supposed to work. But what I had to learn is that you cannot make your youth minister or your preacher or your whatever minister, children's minister, you cannot make that person the foundation of your spiritual well-being because they are definitely capable of failing to lead well. It's a lesson that's hard learned sometimes. But it's one that we all need to come to grips with. So we talked about the original root of Jesse. 
Let's move on to the true and ultimate root of Jesse. So back to the Israelites. Long time has passed since old David was on the throne. Things have basically fallen apart. The people are scattered. They begin crying out to God to rescue them from their oppressors and restore the kingdom. They want to return to the way that things were supposed to be. And they wanted a leader that they could follow who they knew would lead them well onto the right path. And the kingdom of David at this moment in history did not exist in a literal sense. But fortunately, the lineage of David was far from extinguished. And with that knowledge tucked away in the collective memory of the Israelites, all hope was not yet lost. I think this is a good time to remind ourselves of a phrase that Josh has used in the last couple of Advent messages, that a promise delayed is not a promise denied. It undoubtedly felt to the Israelite people that the promise of King David's throne reigning forever had been denied, but it had simply been delayed. And all of it was coming to a head. And then we get to Matthew chapter 1. And it starts like this. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one, the son of David, name drop, the son of Abraham, double name drop. Okay, so right at the beginning of the Gospels, the New Testament account, we see that Matthew's going to start us off by connecting this person, Jesus, which is the whole point of his writing, Two, the great King David, and Abraham, the patriarch of the Hebrew people. And then he goes, he he lists a bunch of names, which we're not going to put on the screen because it would be a little overwhelming. But here's the basic breakdown of what he's trying to communicate to us through this list of, of several names. He has one division that shows Abraham, starts with him, the patriarch, the original father of the Hebrews. And he says, here's the guys that got us to David, the great king. And then he says... Starting at David, the great king, here's all the different people, the descendants of David, that got us to the point of the exile when the the nations of Israel and Judah were scattered to the earth. And then, just when everybody thought that the promise had been denied, it doesn't end there. And in fact, we see that the lineage continues. The pedigree of Jesus continues from the exile all the way down to this person. Matthew's trying to say it as he opens his gospel message to the world Everything that's been happening has been leading to one person. This person, Jesus. And Luke just lays it out for us in his retelling. I love this one from, from Luke 1. He says, you, t- talking to Mary, God talking to Mary, he says, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus, which Josh reminded us last week means God saves. That's the name of Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. This is the promise being fulfilled. It had been delayed, but not denied, and now it is coming true. Jesus connects all the dots and fulfills all the promises. Because in Jesus we witness the return of the king. I told first service, I really wanted to drop in a Lord of the Rings reference here, but I had to leave it on the cutting room floor, so this is what you get. Enjoy, Lord of the Rings nerds like myself. But the question is, the king has returned, but will this king lead well? Because the greatest king before failed. 
And I love what we read from Isaiah chapter 11, which was written long before Jesus actually came onto the earth. But it was a prophecy about this coming king, this future Messiah. And here's what Isaiah has to say. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Remember, Jesse was David's dad, a descendant. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. And the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. There's so much in this passage. So much that reveals the glory and the majesty of this coming king, this coming Messiah. And what I I think is cool about this is it obviously paints a pretty awesome picture, but there's other things that we know, like this, that, that Jesus also fits into the template set by David. Isn't this neat? Check it out. So like David, Jesus arose from obscurity. Little baby, born in the manger, in Bethlehem. Who in the world was he? Nobody. And yet he gets elevated to the highest place. Jesus was strong in his faith even from youth. Many of you remember the famous story when Mary and Joseph and their family had to go to Jerusalem for their yearly gathering. And as they leave, they, they realize a few days later that they kind of forgot Jesus. And they go back and they find him. And as a young man, a very young man, a little boy, they find him in the temple teaching the religious leaders who cannot believe the wisdom and the things coming out of this kid's mouth. They are blown away by the amount of knowledge and understanding this young boy Jesus has. We know from his youth, he was strong in the faith. Obviously, he's Jesus. We know that he becomes a great leader of men. Starts with 12. It grows, contracts, grows. But we know that eventually, he would have attracted a devoted following. Think about this. We're still here. 2,000 years later, people are still gathering to worship this guy. He attracted a devoted following far greater than David could have ever imagined. He became a respected and beloved king. Again, I cite the fact that we are here, walking right now, talking about his birth. We know that his influence and reach of his kingdom has increased. If you look around the world, the kingdom of heaven, the gospel has spread to all corners of this earth because he wasn't content with just a small place. Like David wasn't content with just a measly nation. He wanted to be greater. Jesus wants his nation to be greater. He wants his kingdom to expand and to have influence over all things. But more than all of that, just like with David, Jesus is one 
who is sought after the Lord his entire life. Now, he's in a different position, obviously, but throughout the scripture, we see him going to the Father God in prayer or seeking after him or looking for spiritual nourishment from God. Every move he makes, he is demonstrating to us that a godly person seeks after the Lord. And I love that. But like David and so many other leaders that came before him, you do have to ask the question, like, is Jesus, this great king, also destined to fail us? No. No. And why? Because unlike David and all other leaders, he is not simply some flawed human man. He is the eternal, spotless, blameless, guiltless, righteous son of the one true God, and he is our high king. And that makes a difference. Because Jesus is the only one who will not fail to lead us well. That is the promise of Advent. And in the same way that we talked about earlier, how a great leader makes things better, Jesus makes you better if you name him as your king. In fact, the, the word that the Bible uses to describe what's going on here is this idea of transformation or being made new. Now, it's not going to be on the screen, but if you look to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, you would read where it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, it has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Amen to that. Who in this room is humble enough to admit that you've got some areas of your life that are in need of some royal intervention? I am. I bet, I bet you would probably agree that you are as well. I want to wrap up my final thought here by borrowing from some lyrics from a song that we have sung uh, here at church many times. It's the newer version of Just As I Am that includes a chorus. I think you'll recognize this. But, but think in your head, does this apply to me? If you are broken, you are in need of mending. Are you wounded and in need of healing? Are you desperate and needing to be rescued? Are you empty, needing to be filled? Are you guilty, in need of pardon? Do you desire to be welcomed into the arms of God? I know that there's a lot in this room and probably some watching online today that, that may feel lost and are desperate for a leader who won't fail them. And others of you, though, may be so used to being the leader that you kind of forgot what it's like to follow. Or maybe you just feel like there's nobody out there that's worthy of being followed. But whatever perspective you're coming from today, please hear these words. King Jesus is worthy. He alone is worthy of being followed because he will not fail to lead us well. He's the good shepherd. And he will lead us into quiet waters and green pastures. He is the mighty fortress in which we can find safety. He is the roaring lion who will leap into the fray and go to battle on our behalf. And if we anchor ourselves in him and embrace his authority over our lives, we can find peace because he will not fail to lead. Because he is worthy.